before we jump into our passage this morning, all right? So just a quick recap. So James, like I said, is the half-brother of Jesus. Uh, He comes to faith after Jesus' resurrection. So before that, he was like, I don't believe that my older brother is the Messiah. There's no ways that the guy that I share a bedroom with could ever be the savior of the world. So he just just doesn't believe. And so after Jesus' death, after his resurrection, Jesus shows up. He sees him. How awkward is that, right? To think, no, this dude was not the real deal. And now here he is. I just saw you die. Okay, you must be the savior of the world. All right, so he gives his life to Jesus. Um, and then he kind of grows to become an incredible man after God's heart. He ends up leading the council of Jerusalem. All right, he preaches there regularly. And why he writes, or at the point where he writes this letter, is there's massive persecution that happens in Jerusalem. And so all the Christians kind of disperse. They, they, they flee. They, they go to different places, places that are not their home. And so they find themselves uh, in this foreign land under immense persecution. And so James feels it necessary to write to them, to encourage them, to remind them of God's love in the midst of their suffering, in the midst of their persecution, right? And so last week, what uh, Stephen did as he kind of led us through the beginning of James chapter one, uh, and he did so beautifully, is he said this. He says, in times of struggle, right? In times of difficulties, in times where we are faced uh, with just so much, it feels like the weight of the world is on our shoulders. Three things generally happen. All right, three things generally happen. We looked at two last week, and then this week we'll look at one. James is aware of what's going on with the people of God. He says, I know that you guys are are under immense persecution. And so he's almost warning them, saying, listen, I need you guys to keep your eyes fixed on the author and perfecter of our faith. And so I just want to let you know that, that in the season of trial, here are some things that could come your way. All right, the first is doubt, right? When we feel like life isn't going the way we want it to go, and when we're in that season of difficulty, we begin to doubt. We, we doubt God's goodness. We, we doubt who he is. We doubt that he is sovereign. We doubt that he is seated on the throne fully in control. And so James warns them. He says, don't, don't doubt. Rather, seek the wisdom of God. Don't Don't doubt. The second thing that he says could come your way is the the comparison, the the temptation of comparison. So we doubt and then we we start to go, you know what? Man, the grass is greener on the other side. The, The grass is greener on the other side. Maybe in your marriage, you're going through a difficult time. And then you just go, but maybe, maybe somewhere else will be better. Maybe if I had a different set of kids, it'd be better. If I had a different job, it'd be better. If I had a different church, it would be better. The grass will always seem greener on the other side when you're going through a tough time. We begin to compare. And that leads to all sorts of places. It leads to bitterness. It leads to anger. It leads to jealousy. And then the third thing that James warns us against, and we're going to look at that this morning, is temptation. Temptation tempted to to stray away from God, tempted to sin, to take our eyes off Him, to believe that we are the masters of our own destiny, that we are in control, not God, to be led astray, 
What I usually do when I give illustrations, if you've been here for a while, I like to say it this way. Um, when we're talking about something pretty intense and, and I, and I want to land the plane, I want it to, 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 to be real to where you find yourself, I, I tend to say it this way. I go and I prep you, right? I always prep you by saying this. Uh, I'm about to enter into your living room and I'm going to put my feet up on your coffee table. It means that we're about to get super personal, right? This is what I do. But, but this morning, um, as we were singing and, and praying, and, and wait, Wandila, is she in here? That, that cellar was incredible. That spoke to my soul. I was like, okay, I'm not going to do that with you guys. I'm going to do it for me. So I'm going to allow you to, to look into the depths of my heart. All right? So I'm going to allow you into my living room, and, and I'm going to let you put your feet, some of y'all's feet. I would never think about doing this. But I will allow you to put your feet on my coffee table and kind of show you what happens in my own heart when I experience trials and challenges and difficulties. And I won't just use some random example. I'll make it real. So one of my struggles is, is the, the flow and rhythms of this church. I mean, folks, look around. I know that not everyone is here. I know that. I'm just keeping it real, guys. I'm allowing you into my heart, all right? And so I know that we, we, there's this flow. There's, this, there's Sundays where it's like, oh my goodness, we're running out of space. And then there's Sundays where I'm like, where is everyone? <laughs> and so to me, it feels like a trial. It, it, it feels like a persecution. I know it's ridiculous, folks. I'm, I'm just keeping it real. It, it feels that way. And so I, I sit at the back sometimes and I'm like, what on earth is going on? And so my heart goes to doubt. I doubt God's goodness. I don't doubt who he is. I know that he's there. I've been doing this long enough to know that. But, but I doubt that he's, he's good. And then I doubt that he's called me to this. I sit there and I'm like, God, God did, you really, did you really call me to, to do this? Maybe I didn't hear you correctly. It was loud. The kids were making a noise. And so maybe you said a transatlantic mission agency. That's, that's what I want you to do. And so from doubt, it moves to comparison. But God, hold on. I have a friend who planted a church and they're not wrestling through half the stuff we're wrestling through. It just seems so much easier. And, and I know it's not, but, but that's what I tell myself. I believe the lie. It seems so much easier for them. Look at their growth. Look, look at, they're, they're sustainable and financially sustainable in two years. That is ridiculous. God, how, why? I mean, he's preaching his, okay. The grass is greener on the other side. It, it goes even further. I, I start to go, well, maybe the eight to five isn't such a bad idea. Maybe I could do this and the eight to five. Because I'm, like, it'll never happen. Like, there's no ways I could do both. I mean, some of you are going, man, in the last two years, and I feel like I haven't seen you. If I do an eight to five and this, you will never see me. <laughs> but, but it's, it's the lie of the grass is greener on the other side. And then I start listening to the other 
job opportunities that are on offer. Hey, Ono, we uh, saw that post you did on Facebook, that article, that blog, that sermon, that conference you spoke at. Man, you could be really useful over here. Would you consider? Hmm. These are the places my heart goes to. I'm just keeping it real. And I know that, that it's similar places in your own lives and hearts. And so we doubt and then we, we compare. And then temptation, it just, it's like it's so simple. God just goes, okay, here. Well, not God, sorry. Satan just goes here. Now, that would have been bad if God, God didn't know. All right? If we're talking about financial struggles, then we're tempted with, well, just change the numbers here and there and, and you'll be okay. It's just so much easier. Maybe in relationships and you just feel like it'd just be so much easier just to, just to, just to do that and, and go over there and do this with this person. It's, it's just so much easier. And so James warns us against that. He warns us against that. And so this, this morning, we're going to look at temptation. We're going to dive into what, what temptation does when we give into it. And so if you have a Bible, like I said, meet me in James chapter 1, verse 12. It'll be up on the screen, and so you can follow there as well. I'm going to, I'm going to read it to us. I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray for you. I'll see you pray for me. Um, that God would show up in an incredible, amazing way and meet us where we are. Hear these words of our Father. Blessed is the one who endures trials, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. No one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God, since God is not tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like the shifting shadows. By his own choice, he gave us birth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, thank you that it's real. Thank you that it meets us where we are. I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come now into this place, that you would soften hearts, open them up. We want to see you for who you are. Lord, I pray against the evil one and his desires to steal, kill, and destroy, that he, he loves to tempt us. He loves to tempt us. And so would you give us all that we need to not give in? Lord, it's to that end that I ask that you stand in my body, think through my mind, speak through my vocal cords, those things you'd have us know, say, and do. May the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. God, you are our king and you are our redeemer. Would you have your way in this place? In Jesus' beautiful name we pray. Amen. Our culture loves to put the blame on someone else. It feels like it's the narrative of our culture. It's always about shifting the blame. But, but I, as I began to kind of look into this, it's not just 
culture. It's not just something that happens out there. Folks, I think it's something that we do. We as Christians, for those who have crossed the line of faith, if you are a believer in Jesus here this morning, that you are the same. We, we love to, to put the blame somewhere else. And so when it comes to sin, we usually do the same thing to try to explain why we have given in to sin. Want to blame someone else or something else. And so there are three common beliefs which are false, right? They're false, but there are three common beliefs that we have when, when dealing with sin. This is what we tell ourselves when we fall into sin. The, the three are ordained circumstances and disposition. All right, ordained circumstances and disposition. Let me read them real quick. Ordained, a common Christian delusion is to say that since God ordains everything, he has ordained that we succumb to sin. Now, I know for some of us, we might be sitting here and maybe chuckling a little bit because we feel like, man, that's ridiculous. But the reality is that many of us actually believe this. Many of us actually believe this. The second one is circumstances. Others will fault God for placing them in circumstances which are simply too much for them. We see this maybe with students who cheat, rationalizing that God is to blame for for giving them such a difficult professor and a weak mind. Or maybe the thief who steals and then blames God for his poverty. Or maybe the drunkard who blames his partying friends. God, it's, it's this group of friends that you gave me, right? You, you called me to go reach them, to go hang out with them, to share the gospel with them. Oh, but now I found myself drinking with them and now I'm drunk. The third one is disposition. This is probably the most common one. We say that God has given me these passions and, and appetites that are so strong that I can do nothing to yield them. It's the, this is how God has made me lie. And so folks, none of these are true. And they should never come out of the mouth of a believer. So that's why James begins this morning by saying in verse 13, no one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God. No one. We, we shouldn't fall into Adam's pathetic uh, 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 lie or attempt to cover up his sin in Genesis 3 verse 12, where it says, the man replied, this is, so this is after they had, had fallen into sin, this is what Adam says, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some of the fruit, and so I ate it. It's like, hold on, Adam, what about your responsibility? No, no, God, it's this woman that you made. She gave me the fruit. And so no matter how we try to, to rework that, we're always, always, always trying to pin it on someone else and not ourselves. And so we must never say or even imagine that God is tempting us. He never has and he never will. James gives us the reason for this in the rest of the verse. He says, since God is not tempted by evil, Since God is not tempted by evil, the statement that God cannot be tempted is stressed by a rare verbal adjective, which means that he is unable to be tempted. 
He is untemptable. Listen, folks, this is, this is bad grammar, but it's great theology. He is untemptable. James wants to be clear that evil has never had an appeal to God. In fact, it's offensive and distasteful and disgusting to him. Evil cannot promote even the slightest appealing tug in the heart of God because he cannot be tempted to sin. James drives the point home by saying this, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. God has never tempted us to sin because he himself cannot. He cannot. It's not in his nature. It is a moral impossibility. Now, this is extremely important because the the human inclination, right? This is you and me. The human inclination from the very beginning, from the Garden of Eden, is to consciously, and maybe sometimes subconsciously, blame God whenever we fall into sin. And we do this to try to remove the, the guilt the guilt that we, we are covered in when we sin. Now, it's important to note before we continue, all right, because I know some of you are probably asking this in your heart. You're like, mm, God doesn't tempt, but it's important to note that, yes, he doesn't tempt us, but often he does test us. He doesn't tempt us, but often he will test us in order to prove and improve our character. Some of you might know the part from the Lord's Prayer that says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This means don't allow us to come under the influence of temptation that will overpower us and cause us to sin. It's it's a cry to God to say, listen, protect us, protect us from the temptations of sin. In fact, Paul says, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, no temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way out so that you may be able to bear it. God protects us. He doesn't tempt us. Now, having made a powerful defense of the character of God, James now describes the, the source of our temptation. If, if it's not God, then, then who is it? Who is it? And he doesn't mince his words. He, he doesn't leave room for error or, or, or leave room to be misquoted. He keeps it plain and he keeps it real. Who's the source of our temptation? Verse 14 but each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desires. Some of y'all didn't see that coming. James knew well that Satan tempts Christians, right? He's he's not saying that that Satan is not part of the equation. He, He knew very well that Satan tempts Christians. In fact, we see this in James chapter four, verse seven. And so we'll get to that. We'll get to that. But he also knew that the root of the problem is our own evil. It's us. It's you and me. It's our pride, our selfishness, and our idolatry. 
our pride, our selfishness, and our, our idolatry. And friends, we should never forget that. We should never forget that. In fact, we shouldn't be surprised by it. If you've been a Christian for a while, you should know this. It shouldn't surprise you. I should know this. We all fall short of the glory of God and are in desperate need of a Savior. This is something we say over and over again here at Rooted Fellowship. All of us are in desperate need of a Savior. It's our hearts that are the problem. It's the the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. We all struggle with this. And if you deny it, if you're sitting here and you're going, "Mm, I don't know if I land in that group, then you are revealing your struggle of the third one, which is the pride of life. That you're too prideful to acknowledge your own brokenness and shortcomings. That you don't want to realize that you yourself are not perfect. We are too easily drawn away and enticed by our own evil Desires. In fact, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, phenomenal man, phenomenal man, writes it uh, like this in his book called Temptation. With irresistible power, desire seizes mastery over the flesh. It makes no difference whether it's sexual desire or ambition or vanity or desire for revenge or love of fame and power or greed for money. Joy in God is extinguished in us and we all seek our joy in the creation instead of the created. At this moment, God is quite unreal to us. He loses all reality and only desire, we only desire for the creation. Satan does not here fill us with a hatred of God. Right? So Bonhoeffer says, no, 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 Satan doesn't, doesn't fill us with a hatred for God, but with a forgetfulness of God. The lust thus aroused covers the mind and the will of man in the deepest, darkest place. The powers of clear discrimination and of decision are taken from us. The questions present themselves Is what the flesh desires really sin in this case? Like, is it really a sin? I mean, I feel good. It it makes me feel good. Can it be that bad? We begin to ask ourselves these questions. Maybe another one we ask is, did God really say no? Did he really say no to this? Show, Show me in scripture where this is. It is here that everything within us rises against the very word of God. And this is true. This is true. This is true for me. When we are in the grip of lust, God is never more distant. We forget who we are. We forget who God is. And then we completely disregard his word. When we find ourselves in this place, there is only one thing to do to turn around and head for home, to head for the safety that is found only in Christ. When you're in this place, when when you feel so overwhelmed, it's not to continue down the spiraling road. It's to pause for a moment and to say, listen, what I am running after will not satisfy me. 
I need to stop, turn around and head home. Back into the loving arms of our father. And, and side note, I know we did this over three weeks talking about community and that we're made for fellowship. But, but can I say that one of the ways God gets us to stop, well, one of the ways that he, he tugs on our hearts and says you're going in the wrong direction is in the context of community. And yet for some reason, we believe the lie that we can live in isolation. That we're okay on our own. And God says, no, this is why I have made community. This is why I have made you for fellowship. And so we must recognize that our hearts are the issue. It's our pride and our selfishness. It's because we want to be the ones seated on the throne and we want to be in control, in control of our finances, in control of our relationships, in control of our sexuality, in control of everything. And the reality is we cannot, we cannot. We must be aware of our hearts. But then James now transitions and, and he says, okay, listen, here's the source of the temptation, but, but let's talk a little bit about the result. Here's what happens if you, if you give in to sin. If you give in to these temptations, here's what happens. Verse 15, then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Notice the progression. Do you see the progression? Evil desire, then it becomes sin, and ultimately it leads to death. There is no other option. There is no other option. There are no negotiations. There is no escape. The only result, if you continue down this path, is death. And this death is, is, is alienation from the life of God. It's separation from the soul of God. It's an absence from the presence of God. This, dear friends, is far worse than physical death. It is far worse than physical death. But James tells us there's hope. He tells us there's hope. We read about it in Romans chapter 5, verse 19, where Paul writes, for just as through one man's disobedience, this is Adam, this is why we sit in the reality that we sit in with sin and brokenness because of one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. That's you and me. So also through one man's obedience, this is Jesus, the many will be made righteous. You see, Jesus is the source of victory over sin and temptation. And Jesus is the path that leads to a life which triumphs over temptation. Not your own plans. Not your own strength. It's not about your intellect. Your resources will not dig you up out of your sin. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. It's because of his obedience. And so if you are in the grip of temptation, take the eternally healthy step of admitting that you are to blame and no one else. Just acknowledge it. 
We, we say this every Sunday that, that we want Rooted to be a place where it's okay to not be okay. It's okay to not be okay. It's okay to show up in here and be like, guys, it's not about what I did last year. It's not what I, about what I did six months ago. It's, what about, it's about what I did last night. It's about what I did last night. And so don't show up in here and, and be like, I'm, I'm, I'm fantastic. I'm great. How are you? Oh, on top of the world. God is good. And then you kind of just, you, you, you do the thing that someone else is supposed to do, right? Because you, you, you're trying to pretend so much. You'll, God is good all the time. All the time. God is good. It's like, oh, no, hold on. We're supposed to say that other part. It's like, no, uh, I'm trying to keep up with the lie. And so we, we acknowledge that we are at fault, that I gave in to the temptation that caused me to sin. Acknowledge the depravity of your heart to seek self in all things. Just acknowledge it. Then having confessed your responsibility fully to God, we thank him for his forgiveness. And then we anchor ourselves in Jesus, acknowledging him as Lord and Savior. And this isn't something that happens once. That if you're a Christian, this is something that's going to happen over and over and over again, because one, you acknowledge that you are not perfect and that you are in desperate need of a savior. But how? Because this is easier said than done. Especially if you've been swimming in sin for a long time, if you've been swimming in doubt for a long time, if you've been swimming in comparison for a long time, this is easier said than done especially in a season where you feel like the world is coming at you at 180 kilometers. How? How do I anchor myself in Jesus? How do I keep my eyes fixed on him as the author and perfecter of my faith? James answers us in verse 16 to 18. He says, don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. By his own choice, he gave us birth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. You want to know how you anchor yourself in Jesus? You remind yourself of these beautiful truths that are found in verse 16 to 18. You continue to come to these truths over and over and over again. And that is that every good and perfect gift comes from God. Every, every. You guys want to know what the the, the Greek word for every is? It's every. Every good and perfect gift comes from God. Now, now, we we could talk about this for days. And so what I've done is I'm going to split them into two. Right, when we talk about the gifts that come from God, I'm going to split them into two. I'm going to talk about the, the common gifts, what they call common grace. And then I want to talk about saving grace. Right, So there's common grace and saving grace. And both are good things that come from God. So, so common grace. Common grace would be, would be the fact that the ribs at Tribeca taste the way they do. That is a good gift from God. 
And it may not be the ribs for you. To that I would say, shame on you. But, but whatever meal that you think of that you're like, man, when I, when I dive into that, the, the flavors, that is a gift from God. It's common grace. It's, it's common to everyone. You don't have to believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior to enjoy that gift. It's the very air that we breathe. The fact that our heart sits exactly where it's supposed to. That if it was three centimeters to the right or the left, I'd have a serious condition. It's common grace given to everyone. And the reality is that for most of us, we we travel at 180 kilometers uh, in our lives, right? So hopefully not in your car, but our lives There's so much happening in our lives. And then when you add persecution and trials and suffering and challenges to that, we never ever pause to go, hold on, I have so much to be thankful for. There is so much to be thankful for. The clothes that you wear. The house that you live in. The bed you go to sleep in at night. It's common grace. But then for those who are Christian, for those who have crossed the line of faith, for those who look to Jesus as Lord and Savior, we we have what we call saving grace. And what a beautiful gift that is. Saving grace, the the fact that we are redeemed, redeemed, this this word redeemed simply means to be be bought, to be purchased. It's it's the language that they used to talk about when slaves move from being uh, in bondage to now living in freedom. That we are redeemed. It's like adoption. We are adopted into the family of God, saving grace. And what a privilege that is. Uh, Permit me for a moment just to unpack three, three incredible privileges that we have for those who are adopted into the family of God. The the first one is we enjoy the freedom of being children of God. We are set free from the hold of the old family, which is sin and death. Just like we have sung, we are no longer slaves to sin. We are no longer slaves to sin. No longer slaves to the influence of sin and its temptations. The second privilege is we have a new title. We are now royal sons and daughters who have a seat at the king's table. We have a seat at the king's table. And despite our current earthly situation, our our trials and our challenges, despite all of that, because we have a seat at the table, we can recognize that whatever we're experiencing is temporary and pale in comparison to what awaits us in the eternal heavenly places. And then the third thing is we experience boldness before the face of God, which simply means that we can boldly approach the throne of grace. That we have a father who welcomes us, who says, whatever situation you're going through, come to me. Come to me. It's like the prodigal son. I love that parable. Because for many of us, we we treat God as, you know, I've sinned, what I did last night, my goodness, like, I don't know if you'll forgive me. 
But I know, you know, Oni's going to come up and he's going to preach and he's going to say, come to the Father. And so I guess I'll come, but I better have like really good excuses to why I gave in to that because, so that, you know, so that he'll love me again. And so we do this and we're walking towards the Father. We're walking towards the throne of grace. And then when we lift our eyes, we see a loving Father running towards us. His arms wide open ready to embrace because his son or his daughter has returned home. We can boldly approach the throne of grace because we are adopted, we are redeemed because of saving grace. I could go on and on and on about the privileges of being redeemed. But let me continue for the sake of time, James writes, he, he wraps up this portion by saying, by his own choice, he gave us birth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. By his own choice. By his own choice. How I need to hear that over and over again. If, you, if you're wondering Hey, how can I serve you on it? As you wrestle through everything that you're wrestling through, how can I love you and serve you? Come and tell me by his own choice. Just look at me and say, brother, can I pray for you by his own choice? Because what this means is that we are sealed. We are sealed. That there is no return slip for Christ's purchase. And some of us live this way. We, we, we live in, in such a way that we go, oh, you know, if I do something wrong, he's going to return me. What happened on the cross will go away. And so we believe the lie. We go, I think maybe Jesus' arm was twisted in dying for me. Maybe he was like, oh, I don't know, I don't know. He's having a discussion with, with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And he's going, guys, I don't know about this. Can we put in a, a, an escape clause in the contract? That after five, five sins, five sins, that's it, you, you're going back. We live that way. I live this way. And it kind of makes sense. Because I know me. I know me. I'm the guy who goes, Jesus, forgive me. I, I, I've sinned again. I've believed the lie. I won't do it again. Guess what? Give me two weeks. Give me two weeks. I'll find myself sitting at the back again and going, God, did you call me to this? Or maybe I'll experience a a ministry difficulty and I'll go, like, really? Why? Why am I doing this? And then slowly be tempted into sin. And so I know me. I know that when I say I'll never do this again, it's like, oh. And so I wonder why would, why would anybody die for someone like that? I mean, would you? Knowing, knowing, fully, fully knowing that this person is going to drop the ball over and over and over again. You still look to the cross and you say, I'm going. I'm going. Excruciating pain. I'm going. 
by his own choice. Scripture tells us that before the creation of the world and all that we see in it, he had you in his sight. With everything that you would do, he still said, I'm heading to the cross by my own choice. This will glorify the Father and this will bring great joy to his people. And so if you are a Christian here this morning and you're going through a really tough time, I want you to know that God has a plan for you. God has a plan for you. And he has a purpose for your suffering when he listed it beautifully. He has a purpose for your suffering. And that he has made a promise to you. And that promise is that all of this will fade away. That all of this is temporary. Whatever you're going through is temporary. It will, it will fade away. And what awaits you will be incomparable to what we have here. It will be glorious and full of joy. And so before I close this in prayer, I just want to pause for a moment. And I just want to ask the question that for those, maybe for you this morning, you walked in with incredible doubt. You're going through a lot and, and you walked in here, maybe it was a struggle to even show up this morning because you're just doubting. You're doubting God's goodness. You're, you're doubting his sovereignty. You're, you're doubting his protection. I want you to know that God has something for you this morning. He has a plan for you and he has a purpose for your suffering. And because all his promises are yes in Christ, what awaits you is far more glorious than what you're experiencing now. Maybe you walked in here comparing. You're looking at other people in the room and you're like, but why them? They're not as faithful, God. They don't show up every Sunday, God. Why, why are you blessing them? Why are you opening up doors for them? I want you to know that God has a plan for you. He has a purpose for your suffering. And he has made a promise to you that what awaits you is far more glorious than what you're going through now or what you're experiencing now or what you'll ever have in this life. Or maybe you're just like, temptation is just everywhere. I've doubted. I'm done with the comparison stuff. I'm even wondering if grass can even grow where I am. And so it's just easier. It's easier to give in. Maybe I've already given in. God has a plan for you. A purpose for your suffering. And what he has promised to you is, is incomparable to whatever that thing is, is promising to give you. It'll never be enough. That relationship will never be enough. That job will never be enough. Your children will never be enough. And so to you, I say, hold on. James says to us, hold on. Let us claim the promises that are found in Scripture that have been made, yes, in Christ. Let's, let's claim 2 Corinthians together with Paul. 2 Corinthians 
chapter 4. Paul writes in verse 17 to 18, For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Don't focus on what you see right now. As a tough sure, I'll never disregard that. I will never disregard that. But don't focus on what is seen. We focus on what is unseen. What has been promised to us and what awaits us. And so we hold on to those promises. Trusting and believing. That he who is faithful will return one day and make all things new. Let's pray. And so Lord, we, we come now asking that, that you would cause us to be still for a moment. Allow us to be still for long enough to enter into that place where it's uncomfortable. Because what we tend to do is we, we drown out the, the, the difficult things that are happening in our lives with noise, with, with, oh, with responsibilities and, and tasks and lists and this I have to do and that I have to do and, and don't acknowledge that no, maybe, maybe God, I'm, I'm going through something and you're wanting me to pause for a moment and to just kind of navigate through it. Not to avoid it, but to navigate through it. I, I think of many who would say that the Christian life can be described this way. You're either walking into a fire, you're in a fire, or you've just come out. And so, Lord, I pray for those who are in any of those three places. Maybe they, they see it. They see what awaits them, the, the fire that awaits them, and they're wondering, is there a way to avoid this? Maybe there is, God. But let that be your will and not ours. So help us to listen to you so that we might boldly walk into it, knowing that you love us, that you are with us, and you will always protect us. Lord, I pray for those who are in the fire. Maybe they've been there for a short time. Maybe they've been there for a while. Maybe they have realized that this might be their reality until their death or until you return. God, I pray that they would feel your presence in that place, that you are there with them, that you will never leave nor forsake them. And Lord, I pray for those who have come out, maybe have walked in here and are like, gosh, I just came from a season like that. Lord, I ask that they would turn to those who are in those places and, and become an agent of comfort to them. That their testimonies would encourage us to say, I have just come from this place and God was with me. Let me point you to him. God, in all of this, we want to see you as our loving Father. That you are good. 
You're a good father. But the evil one, he, he's always trying to, to, to lie and to deceive and to get us to turn away from you. I ask that your Holy Spirit would hold on to us. That we would acknowledge that what Jesus, you did on the cross was beautiful and amazing and loving and sacrificial. And that we are seated at the table and we have our fathers here. Lord, we love you. We praise you. In Jesus' beautiful, beautiful name we pray. Amen.